You're listening to the So What Podcast. One of the things to understand historically that's going on here, for many in the Reformed tradition, like Calvin and Bart, uh, the descent into hell is a continuation of God's pouring out his wrath upon Jesus. Uh, but with great fear and trepidation, I'm going to disagree with Calvin and Bart, but I think that the saving work of Christ uh, in terms of atonement uh, is completed whenever he, uh, whenever he dies on the cross. Welcome to the Soa Podcast, where we discuss theological and philosophical issues to ask that obvious question, so what? I'm your host, Kyle Bashirs, and I'm joined by our cast of contributors, Dave Kakish, Matt O'Reilly, and Brad Mills. Well, on this episode, we're very excited to have with us Dr. Nathan Finn. Dr. Finn received his PhD from the Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, and he is currently the Dean of the School of Theology and Missions and Professor of Christian Thought and Tradition at Union University. He is a contributing author to The Baptist Story, From English Sect to Global Faith, published by B&H Academic, and has also contributed to various other books. All of his resources and content may be found at www.nathanfinn.com with two N's. Today, Dr. Finn joins myself and Dave to wrestle with the sixth line in the Apostles' Creed, I believe in Jesus Christ, who descended into hell. This line, more so than any other in the Creed, is perhaps the most contentious, obscure, and mysterious. Dr. Finn helps us navigate through dangerous shoals to sharpen our understanding of this difficult line. But before we head over to the discussion, again, we'd just love to thank you for listening to So What Podcast and for sharing it with your friends. If you enjoy the show, please help our podcast grow by rating and reviewing it in iTunes. You can find out more information about the show and its contributors at SoWhatPodcast.com. Questions about this and any future episodes can be submitted by emailing hello at sowhatpodcast.com. You can keep up with the latest news by following us on Twitter at sowhat underscore podcast. Well, let's head over to this very interesting interview with Dr. Finn. Well, Dr. Finn, thank you so much for joining So What Podcast. My pleasure to be here. Well, you're here today with myself and Dave. Howdy. You know, and we're so glad that you can be here with us to discuss such an uncontroversial and boring topic as the harrowing of hell, Christ's descent into inferno. So thank you. Thank you very much for showing up for this one. Well, I really appreciate it. I feel like it was a uh, special sign of y'all's affection for me that you picked. <laughs> possibly the most controversial statement in church history, and assigned it to me. Now, you, that's a great point that you bring up, because this line in the Apostles' Creed, perhaps more than any other, is the most, for me anyway, the most notorious for being disliked and misunderstood. In fact, more often than not, when I'm discussing this line with people and it comes up, it's a sticking point for them. They'll say something along the lines of, well, I agree with the Apostles' Creed, except for that one line about Jesus going to hell. Uh, and so, I suppose to kick off the conversation, Dr. Finn, do you find this line controversial among evangelicals? And if so, why do you think that is? 
I do find this line controversial, uh, and I think there are several reasons for that. I think, uh, just to go ahead and say it, there are some people who think it's controversial because they don't like the Apostles' Creed in principle. Uh, they're sort of a, we don't need creeds because we have the Bible, and so this just sort of proves to them that creeds can err and we shouldn't use creeds. Uh, I think there are others who value the place of creeds and they just flatly disagree with the idea that Jesus went into hell, which is fair enough. And then I think there are people who are confused by this. Just to give a brief anecdote, uh, we're teaching our children the Apostles' Creed right now. And uh, two weeks ago, my eight-year-old daughter asked at dinner, uh, Daddy, when Jesus died, did he suffer in hell uh, like bad people? And I had to explain to her what I believed about it. So, so that's an eight-year-old child in a Christian family who just finds the language confusing and for understandable reasons. So I think there's lots of different reasons why this has become a controversial phrase in the creed. Mm-hmm. So let me ask this question. Do you think it would be safe to uh, disagree with the creed at this point altogether if it means uh, what, what it seems to mean on its face value? Yeah, my position is that we can definitely disagree with what the creed says about descent into hell. We can even omit that phrase completely, and that's not going to mess with anybody's orthodoxy. So we're allowed to disagree with the creed? Just to be clear. Disagree with the creed on this particular point, which arguably was not there at the beginning. Oh, that's that's interesting. So it, it was a later edition, perhaps. Yeah, we think it was probably a later edition. Now, here's the honest reality. Uh, we don't know when the first editions of the Creed were out there. It's something that seems to be organic and fluid and develops over time. Uh, the earliest record we have of the Creed, more or less in the form we have it now, dates to the 330s, and it's somewhere between 30 and 50 years later uh, before we first have the appearance of Descended into Hell. Hmm. So it's possible that there could be earlier versions that are dating out there, but based on the paper trail we have access to, it looks like it's probably a second or third generation addition to the Creed. And, and frankly, even up through the mid-700s, there are versions of the Apostles' Creed with the phrase and versions without the phrase. And so for that reason, uh, many Christians across uh, various traditions have said that this would be something in the creed that we can hold a little bit more loosely uh, because it doesn't seem to be uh, as important or as uh, firmly held as the other statements that are there in the creed. So one argument, a, a proponent of the descent into hell view usually cites antiquity, right? The argument asserts that the Apostles' Creed has been confessed, un, confessed universally since at least AD 200 by the Catholic Church, and they'll concede some liquidity on the addition of a phrase, this phrase in question, uh, the dissension clause, and they'll point typically to Rufinus in 390 AD, give or take, and they, they say he was one of the first to pen this phrase, he descended into hell. What I find interesting, though, is that even by pointing to him, this very man that they're citing uh, as evidence for antiquity, he meant it just to be mean that Christ was buried. Uh, and Philip Schaff, in his prominent Creeds of Christendom, admits Rufinus himself, however, misunderstood it by making it to mean that same is buried. Uh, so he will cite him as proof for antiquity, but then say that he misunderstood what he meant by adding it. Depending upon what the phrase means, which is, I know, part of what we're going to talk about, uh, I mean, there are even earlier versions than, uh, than Rufinus. I mean, some of the church fathers clearly talk about uh, Jesus descending into the realm of the dead. Uh, and so it all gets into the definitions. But, but if it's 
about the language that we literally translate descending into hell, then uh, then I think we're going to be hard pressed to go back earlier than the 300s, and and that's and that's certainly uh, antiquity compared to where we are now. Uh, but it's not like New Testament manuscripts antiquity hmm. or even uh, apostolic fathers antiquity. Yeah. So it's not like these guys were making this up in the fourth century, adding theology to an existing Christian tradition. Now, if if that's the case, then if this is if this let's say rooted in Scripture, if it's rooted in 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 the the earliest understandings of Christian faith. What are our options for understanding this line? If we were to accept it, uh, what are the the common ways that people interpret this line today? Yeah, so in looking through the material that is out there, there seems to be five or six or seven different views depending upon how people are dividing them up. Uh, I personally divide them up into five different views, uh, some of which I think... Uh, are plausible, at least a couple of them are plausible, and some of them I wit, I think are just not plausible at all. I think they're off the reservation. Um, do you want me to just talk through those? I'm happy to do it. Yeah, that, that would be great. Let yep. me do it. So uh, so one of the views that's out there is that Jesus uh, could have suffered post-mortem torment as one extension of his atonement. Uh, that basically the atonement begins on the cross, but it extends into his post-mortem suffering. Uh, Augustine held to this view in at least some of his writings, though uh, though Augustine is going to probably hold to more than one view. And uh, in modern days, the uh, the Catholic theologian Hans Urv von Balthasar uh, actually held a version of this view. Uh, the second view is what we find uh, among many in the Reformed tradition, uh, and that is that descended into hell is really a a metaphor for God's wrath that is poured out upon Jesus, not just physically in his crucifixion, which almost everybody would agree with, uh, but also spiritually in the uh, the covenantal separation that he experiences from God when he takes the place of sinners. Uh, that, that view would be identified with uh, John Calvin, Karl Barth, and modern times. Uh, Luther is interesting. He argued for a couple of different views, uh, in one place with Philip Melanchthon, his number two guy, uh, he argued that Jesus descended in the, the place of post-mortem torment for a showdown with the devil, basically to uh, bring an end to his power and to, to conquer hell. Uh, but then he also says in another place uh, that Jesus descended into the realm of the dead more generally uh, to preach to the heathen uh, and to give them a chance to respond to the gospel post-mortem, that there was a sort of wideness in God's mercy, if you will, for those who had died outside of hearing uh, Old Covenant versions of the gospel. Uh, John Wesley uh, has perhaps the merit of holding the most simplest view. Uh, Jesus could not have, uh, could have just simply gone to the realm of the dead. Uh, This phrase simply is a way of saying all that it means to be dead was true of Jesus. So he descended into hell means Jesus was you know dead as a doornail, uh, not just mostly dead, but really dead. Uh, and, and then the fifth view, Jesus could have gone into the realm of the dead specifically to liberate the righteous dead from paradise so that their spirits could then relocate to the presence of the Father in heaven. And uh, this fifth option is often called the harrowing of hell, 
And it's the most common view among the church fathers and uh, Eastern Orthodox, even many Roman Catholics and evangelicals. Uh, so it's not unanimous, uh, but we might call it the uh, slight majority view. And it's going to play off of the parable of the rich man and Lazarus uh, to say that uh, within the realm of the dead, you have both eternal suffering and something called paradise, and the righteous dead are there in paradise. Jesus says to the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise, and so that's where he goes. But he certainly isn't suffering in the afterlife like some of the other views would hold to. So those are at least the views I've found, but I would imagine there are probably uh, 19 or 57 other views that are out there as well. <laughs> so what I'm gathering from listening to those views, and that was a, a very helpful and concise uh, description of, I'm sure, something that goes on very, very deep from just the brief introduction that you gave of each. I, what we're doing here is we're prodding at that question that has vexed people and theologians throughout the years, which is, where was Christ between his death and his resurrection? And within those options, and, and I think this will get maybe into more of the meat of the discussion, which of those do you believe satisfies that question the best? I think that the fifth view, which is the majority view, satisfies that question the best. But satisfying that question the best is not the same as saying it's a slam dunk argument that I would willing, be willing to uh, separate from other Christians. Over. Sure. Uh, I don't think it's crystal clear. We don't have a lot of passages to go on. Uh, to do anything more than just simply appeal to mystery, which is, I think, sort of what Wesley's doing when he says he's just really dead and appealing to mystery. And I think that's a valid view. Um, but I find the fifth one the most persuasive, but definitely short of being a slam dunk. So can we go to some of these passages? Uh, I'm thinking let's start easier and then go harder uh, that people will appeal to to try to prove or solidify their understanding of a descent into hell. The first one that I'm thinking of is Ephesians 4, uh, verse 9 in particular. Uh, there, uh, I'll read from ESV, in saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth, question mark? So does that mean descending into the lower parts of the, the lower regions, the lower parts of the earth? Is that uh, biblical proof for a descent into hell? as some have argued throughout church history? I don't think it is. I think that passage is actually talking more about the incarnation uh, than it is a literal descent into uh, the realm of the dead. What about uh, then First uh, Peter 3, 18 through 20? That's often cited as well for providing the reason for the purpose behind this line. In, in it, Peter writes, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formally did not obey. Yeah, I do not think that this passage is directly related uh, to this topic. Um, I understand that on the face of it, it seems like uh, Jesus might be going and preaching to these imprisoned spirits that are uh, somewhere in the realm of the dead, uh, by the way, that's only one of the passages in First Peter. We also have First uh, Peter four six, uh, where uh, Peter writes, "For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead." Um, so, yeah, these verses are often cited uh, as evidence. I don't think that's what's happening now. I think we have some exegetical reasons for believing that, uh, rather than looking down, if you will, figuratively speaking. 
into the realm of dead. What we need to be doing is looking back into redemption history. Just a point to make on First Peter four six. Sorry to interrupt, but in in, pers- in First Peter four six, the preaching of the gospel was the intent that they will believe, and so making this about a descent view introduces the idea of postmortem salvation, yeah. salvation after death. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's problematic. I mean, you're even going to have some uh, medieval Roman Catholics who are going to look at both of these verses and basically say that descended into hell means actually, based upon the First uh, Peter 4 passage, that he descended into purgatory. Because then, of course, you do have post-mortem salvation in Catholic theology. And so uh, they're going to wrestle with that very thing. Uh, I think we need to look at First Peter uh, chapter 1, verses 10 and 11. I think that's going to help us here. Um, Peter writes, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. So, looking back there and seeing that it's actually the Spirit of Christ who is uh, preaching through those prophets, and then uh, looking at the Noahic context of uh, 1 Peter 3, um, I'm going to take the position that uh, Wayne Grudem and John Piper and Millard Erickson and others take, uh, that Christ was preaching uh, in spirit through Noah when Noah was building the ark, and that this was a gospel message that was delivered to unbelievers who were then alive, but now, at the time of the writing of this epistle, uh, they're imprisoned spirits uh, in the realm of the dead. And, uh, and I think that that's not a slam dunk exegetical argument, uh, but looking in the context of First Peter, I think that's probably the best way to interpret it. And so for that reason, I actually don't relate these verses at all uh, to the idea that Jesus descended into hell. That's funny. When Millard Erickson talks about this passage in First Peter, I don't know what calculations he uses, but he calculates there are 180 different exegetical combinations in theory in understanding this passage in First Peter 3. And I love what Luther says about First Peter 3, 18 through 20. He says that this passage is a wonderful text, and here I quote, and a more obscure passage perhaps than any other in the New Testament, so that I do not know for any certainty just what Peter means. Uh, so I, I think, like you said, we start with the context, and that's what Lloyd-Jones says to do is he feels that most of these expositions go astray because they don't remember what the context is. And I'm thankful for you setting up the context that Peter's intention in writing this letter was to encourage persecuted believers to stand fast while they endure suffering in this evil age. So any conclusion we come to this passage, uh, any possible interpretation we can drum up, must have that context at the forefront of the expl- explanation. And so for yours is Peter is telling these believers who are undergoing suffering and feel as though they are a minority and contending for truth to look back to Noah, who too was a minority in the midst of uh, tons of hostility towards his message and saying, look to him as an example, because Christ preached through him in the spirit when these people were here, so too will he preach through you, endure through the suffering as Noah did, and because you have been delivered like he was. Is that right? That is correct. Um, I think that that is contextually the best reading of First Peter. So I think this probably puts me in a minority. I don't know if there's 180 different possibilities, um, but I think this probably puts me in a minority because I go that route with First Peter, um, but I still think 
that Jesus descends into the realm of the dead, but I think that for other reasons rather than uh, these more traditional proof texts. Mm. Yeah, one of the one of the things you you actually brought up um, a little bit ago when we were talking about those five views of the way to look at this was that there was further suffering after the cross. Of course, when we're talking about unfinished salvation of an individual, that would be their suffering. But here we were talking about Christ's suffering after the cross. I couldn't help but think, then what do we do with uh, Jesus saying, it is finished on the cross, caveat, it'll be an extra three days before I resurrect because I have to suffer a little bit more. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things to understand historically that's going on here is that for uh, the Lutheran tradition, the descent in the he- into hell was the beginning of victory. Uh, the same thing is true for uh, most Catholics and Eastern Orthodox. But for many in the Reformed tradition, like Calvin and Bart, uh, the descent into hell was a continuation of God's pouring out his wrath upon Jesus. Now, just those two phrases being stated, um, I could see why both of them would be appealing. Uh, but with great fear and trepidation, I'm going to disagree with Calvin and Bart uh, because I think that it is finished indicates for me that uh, that we don't need to view the descent into hell, uh, if you will, as a continuation of Jesus's uh, suffering and separation. Uh, instead, uh, maybe not literally saying it's the beginning of the glory, uh, but I think that the saving work of Christ uh, in terms of atonement uh, is completed whenever he... Uh, Whenever he dies on the cross. Now there's two. But sang- again, always a scary thing to push back on oh, Calvin. Oh yeah, <laughs> that's right. And there's yeah. two things that I live by: you don't mess with Mama, and you don't mess with Calvin. And uh, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm one who is sympathetic to Calvin's view, as I see that as the last week we talked about uh, propitiation and what it means that Christ satisfied the fullness of God's wrath that was poured out on him. And I'm with Calvin. I mean, that's how I see when he says it is finished, the full satisfaction of the wrath of God happens on the cross. It doesn't go beyond it. Are we saying something different here? Are we talking past each other? Yeah, I don't know. Maybe we are. But I know this. We don't have to break fellowship over this like no. we would if we were disagreeing over some of the other things in the creed. I have a question. I was was raised in charismatic circles, and, and descent into hell actually came up quite a bit. And there was this whole notion, I'm guessing, based on Revelation 118, where Jesus says, I'm the living one, I was dead, and now look, I'm alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. I was raised in a tradition that believed that after the crucifixion, Jesus goes into the the depths and gets the keys of hell, I don't know, from Satan. Where did this come from? Where is it going? Are two questions I have when I get there. Could you help me unravel that uh, tangled mess of spaghetti? So I'm not sure of where it originates, but I do know that it is a commonly held view in Pentecostal circles. And so you hear some of the, uh, the prosperity gospel type folks using this sort of language, and they're going to apply the victory over the death to the victory over suffering and and sort of do their whole uh, Jesus isn't just securing salvation, but he's securing healing in the cross and doing the prosperity, health and wealth sort of turn there. Um, So I'm not saying those two things are inevitably connected, but I know that that commonly happens in Pentecostal circles. Uh, I don't know where that comes from. I mean, I can't imagine that some random uh, charismatic or Pentecostal minister is is reading the Bible and coming up with that. I mean, I I would imagine that at some point uh, there was somebody in church history, some commentator somewhere that they latched onto, but I honestly don't know where it came from. 
Yeah, that, that, that's helpful. With an episode we did with Dr. Allison, we talked about the difference between error and heresy. And you keep, you keep saying that this is not an issue that we need to break fellowship over, that there is room in the kingdom of Christ to have godly, peaceful, amicable, uh, biblical disagreements about this issue. Uh, where do we draw the line? on this issue in particular, uh, if it's an extension of Christ's suffering, post-mortem salvation, are those some places where we can say, you know, you're delving into the heretical and not just what I view to be error? Uh, again, I'm leading the witness, but I'm, I'm trying to get us on the right track for the so what kind of question. Sure. So the paradigm that I talk about with students, and I know different people use these phrases in different ways. And by the way, if you guys haven't seen it yet, Justin Holcomb had a great article in uh, this last month's Christianity Today where he talked about heresy and how we ought to use that term. Um, and so I say something similar to him. I make a distinction between uh, heresy and heterodoxy. Uh, so I would say that a heresy is a damnably incorrect belief, like rejecting the core of the Christian faith. Uh, you're using the same uh, vocabulary, but you have a different dictionary sort of thing. And, uh, and, of course, orthodoxy is, uh, you know, biblical truth about the most important doctrines. Uh, and I would say that heterodoxy is the murky middle, and that it's kind of a sliding scale. And so heterodoxy is wrong, it's error, it might even be damaging error, but I don't think in and of itself it's damnable error that causes you not to be a Christian. And so I would say that all of the wrong alternatives to what descended into hell means, and perhaps all of these ideas, I mean, it's possible that none of us are getting this right. Uh, I would say that these are various heterodoxies. I don't think any of them are heresy as I would use that term. So even post-mortem salvation, I mean, I think that's a dangerous heterodoxy. It affects the way that we uh, talk about uh the gospel, it affects the way that we proclaim the gospel, perhaps, but I don't think holding that view automatically makes someone not a Christian in the same way that I would say denying the deity of Christ or denying the blood atonement or denying the Trinity or the bodily resurrection or something like that would make someone not a Christian. So I don't think we're in the realm of heresy at all here, but I do think that, uh, the erroneous views are not equally erroneous, and some of them are worse than others. I think the postmortem offer is probably the worst of these views. And, and just to be clear, the reason why, uh, on one of our episodes we talked about, uh, it was very helpful, J.T. English, who's at the Village Church, and they're actually going through a sermon series on the Apostles' Creed, he said that uh, Pastor Matt Chandler has been saying that the creed is like the moon, reflecting the light of the sun, which is the scriptures. It has no inherent authority in itself, but all its authority is presumptive. And so all these lines need to be, in a sense, have parentheses next to them and have verses as to what their biblical um, groundings mm -hmm. and foundations are. And the reason, and, and I don't think we've stated it yet, we reject a post-mortem view is uh, primarily Hebrews 9.27. Am I right? It's appointed for a man to die once, and after that comes the judgment. Uh, we were going to have to do some hermeneutical gymnastics to get around that to say, well, you can die physically, and then there's an opportunity for salvation for some after death. And how do we make sense of that with what the author of Hebrews is telling us about uh, you're only one opportunity to believe. Is that right? Am, am I good there? Any other verses you guys are thinking of? I think you're good there. I mean, I'm just going to level with you guys. Existentially, I understand why people want to affirm views like post-mortem salvation or even less controversial, but I think still wrong, 
um, inclusivism. I mean, I get why people want to go there. I, I feel that same pull out of a genuine love for people and not wanting to see anyone suffer uh, eternal conscious torment. I just don't think the Scripture lets us go there. And so the most reverent thing we can do is to submit to Scriptures and uh, preach the fullness of the law and the gospel uh, to those who are lost. I think that's incredibly helpful. Yeah, that's really good. I think some feel the guilt uh, for wanting to be what Bart maybe was a hopeful universalist, <laughs> you know, uh, parsing out uh, Bart's universalism is a difficult task, one that I don't feel I'm apt to do. But there is this desire that, uh, that we want to see all saved, and, we, and yet we're caught in the paradox of there is a time of a judgment. It's appointed for men to die once, and then the judgment, and yet God does not delight in the destruction of the wicked. Uh, right. so, so how do we reconcile the two? And the reality is we are finite beings who have mm-hmm. a finite and murky understanding of uh, right judgment and justice and what true mercy and grace is. So maybe from our perspective, uh, we're a little miss. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, I'll just tell you, I know we're chasing this rabbit now. Let's I'm... chase. Yeah, let's get him. <laughs> Language has changed on this very issue. I mean, I have always been a soteriological exclusivist. But 15 years ago, I would have said things like, it's not an exact quote, but I would have said things like, you know, if, if we get to eternity and we find out we're wrong on this and that, uh, you know, some who have never heard the gospel will be saved or maybe even uh, all will be saved, uh, I'm not going to be disappointed. I would rejoice in that. I just don't think that we can make that call now. I used to say things like that, and I meant well But I wouldn't even say that now because I think that if we go down that route, it actually contradicts too many things that are clear in Scripture. And so I want to just rest where Scripture is and know that uh, that message is going to be a stumbling block to many, but it's going to be the very words of life to those who are being saved. So, you know, I don't want to hedge even for good motives. I just want to very clearly say Uh, repent for uh, the kingdom of God is here, the judgment of God is coming. Uh, All of us deserve judgment, but uh, there is mercy being offered to us if we trust in the finished work of Christ. Well, we've been discussing the sixth line of the Apostles' Creed, I believe in Jesus Christ who descended into hell. Despite the line's reputation as extremely contentious and mysterious, there is still deep theological truth to be grasped here. Christ most certainly did not descend into a place of continuing torment or else his proclamation on the cross that it is finished would have been untrue. But to the extent of what it means that he descended into hell still remains a mystery. Ultimately, however, due to this mysterious nature of both the theological statement in the creed and the biblical passages that support it, the doctrine of Christ's descent is no matter so severe as to break fellowship over. After all, as Christians, we should all find solace in the fact that, as the next line proclaims, Christ did not remain in the tomb. Well, we really hope you join us next time for a special episode. I recently attended a major theological conference in Atlanta, Georgia, and asked some folks what they thought about the Apostles' Creed. Here's a little taste into what we found out. Uh, Do you agree with the line in the Apostles' Creed that Christ descended into hell? I'm going to go ahead and do the uh, question mark category. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I do. Uh, If you understand it the way I think it was meant, in the, 
in the early year, in the early centuries, yes. In the Hades, yes, which is what it says, yeah. <laughs> Join us next time on a special episode of So What Podcast. The So What Podcast is a production of the people of Mars Hill. For more information, visit pomh.org.